We're moving ahead in our series on the Gospel of John. Today we're in chapter 15, which is the story of the, not the story, Jesus talking to his disciples about him being the true vine. Probably a fairly familiar passage to most of us. There's a tendency, um, as with all of our scripture reading from our culture, but certainly with this passage, to read this story of the vine kind of in purely individualistic terms. It's about me and my relationship with Jesus and how I can stay with him and how my life can go in ways that um, that will promote well-being. And that's an important and valid way to uh, understand this metaphor. But as I looked into it this week, I found out that it's actually broader than that. It goes also into how we function as community and is rooted deeply in the community. Grapes and wine were and are highly important symbols in Jewish tradition and date back a long, long time. There were, some of you may know this, in the first, well, 150 years or so before Jesus, there was a a revolution, the Maccabean-Hasmonean revolution against the Greek and Roman um, conquerors of Palestine. And then in in the early 100s after Jesus, about 130, there was the Bar Kokhba revolution against the Romans that finally actually ended the presence of the Jews in Palestine. And both of those revolutions produced coins. And on those coins were, guess what? Grapevines with grapes. And the second temple built, uh, the temple built by Herod, has this, and I'm quoting now Josephus, the Jewish historian, who's describing the temple, uh, the entry. Under the crown work was spread out a golden vine with its branches hanging down from a great height, the largeness and the workmanship of which were an astonishing sight to the spectators. And Josephus, in another work, writes, The gate opening into the temple was, as I said, completely overlaid with gold, as was the whole wall around it. It had, moreover, above, those, above it those golden vines, from which, depend, from which depended grape clusters, the golden vine, and the veil, as tall as a man. And it had golden doors, 55 cubits high and 16 broad. This idea of this imagery of a, of a vineyard of, of, and of grapes and of grape vines was rooted deeply in Jewish history. And it can, it's possible that even as Jesus spoke these words, he was either walking through the, um, uh, I'm losing the word, the Garden of Olives, the Olive Garden, is that what is, what's it called there in Palestine? The Mount of Olives, that's it. Um, which was filled with what? Olive vines. Or he might have been standing in front of this door of the temple. It would have been nighttime, probably. Now, I'd like to read one Old Testament passage. There are several, but just for lack of time, I'm going to read one from Isaiah chapter 5. 
The first eight verses, you can follow along on the wall, or there's the Bibles around if you want to look um, in a Bible. Certainly, feel free to use your own. Isaiah chapter 5. Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. Okay, so here it's starting out. This is the first Isaiah. This is in the period of time either right before uh, Judah was going to go into exile or perhaps right after. It's right around this time of crisis. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. Notice the word here, beloved. Okay, my beloved has a vineyard on a fertile hill. He dug it, cleared it of stones, planted it with choice vines, built a watchtower in the midst of it, and hewed out a wine vat in it, and he looked for it to yield grapes. Okay? So he's doing all this work. The farmer, uh, digging, digging the vineyard, clearing it of stones, planting it with vines, building a watchtower so he can keep an eye on it, making the wine vat, and waiting for it to yield grapes. But what happens? It yields wild grapes, grapes that are unusable for the rich wine. And now, O inhabitants, inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, Judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard than I have not done in it? I've done everything I can to make sure that this vineyard produces the good grapes. When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now I will tell you, what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge, and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall, and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed, and briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. In other words, I'm done with this one. If you're not going to do what you're supposed to do, if you're not going to produce the fruit you're supposed to produce, you're just going to have breakdown and disaster. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is, listen to this, the house of Israel. And the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. So this is not, he's not talking about people outside the pagans. He's talking about Judah and Israel the sons of Abraham. They are his pleasant planting. The beloved has this pleasant planting. And he looked for what? Justice. And behold, there was bloodshed. And he looked for righteousness. But behold, an outcry. And this imagery of Israel being a vineyard planted by a beloved, and designed to produce grapes that produce wonderful wine was deeply rooted in the Jewish community of that time. Everybody knew about it. And they also knew that they were in exile. They still considered themselves in the time of Jesus in exile. And they knew that they were in exile because they had not been the blessing to the world 
that God had called them when he called Adam to be. So all of this was in the mix during Jesus' life and ministry. The tension was thick in the air, uh, in the political, economic, religious, and military elements of society. And right on the night before he's going to be betrayed, tortured, tried unfairly, crucified, die, and be buried. Jesus takes his disciples, and he says this to them. And now we're going to read John 15. I am the true vine. And my father is the the vine dresser. And again, I hope you're hearing echoes of what we just read in Isaiah 5. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you, that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you, so that you will love one another. Oh, Jesus is saying, I am the true vine. My father is the vine dresser, the husbandman, the farmer. And what does this farmer do to the vine? Well, the first thing in verse 2 is, Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. I'm not a Greek scholar. But I understand from some commentaries that this word takes away, where Jesus says, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, can also mean lift up. And so there's this image here, suggests some, that 
this is not a cutting off and taking away from the branch. It's a lifting it up out of the dirt, and you can picture this happening in a, uh, if you have any climbing plants at all. Lifting it up out of the dirt where it doesn't get the right sun and nutrients and certainly where the clusters of grapes can't grow. Lifting it up and putting it up on the, what do they call that thing that they put the plants on? I'm losing, anyway, you know what I mean. So, so he's not cutting it off and taking it away. He's lifting it up and putting it in a place where it has a chance to root and get the sunlight and the rain and grow this rich bunch of grapes. And, of course, pruning, we all know, is not designed to destroy things. It's designed to give the branch life. The actual word that's used here is the same word from which we get our word catharsis, cleansing. So this vine dresser, God, through Jesus, is... is, is doing what he can in love to make sure that we who are in the vine are growing and developing and getting the nutrients we need in order to do what? In order to bear fruit. This is the whole goal. This is the whole driving force behind God's call to Abraham so many years ago, I'm calling you Abraham so that you will be a blessing to the whole world. And this whole vision of Israel as a vineyard is so that these grapes can, can be part of this banquet that's going to be laid for the whole world. And notice that this fruit, as we, as we, as we saw in Isaiah 5, is justice and righteousness. Pretty much the same words, two different words, but they mean mostly the same thing. The fruit that God is desiring and working for us to produce is the fruit of justice and righteousness, as well as, as Galatians 5 tells us, the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. So you see in this image of the vine in the scriptures and in this image of fruit, you see two levels. That's kind of where I started this morning. You see the individual level, that we become people of patience and of goodness and of joy and of love and of peace. But we also become people and communities in which justice and righteousness are practiced. So how can we do that? How can we join in that process of becoming fruitful on both the individual level as well as the corporate level? And Jesus says it, abide in me. Abide in me, and I in you. This word abide, or the, or, or the, the translation abide, because it's a word that has different meanings. It also just means simply remain. But it's translated abide 43 times in the New Testament. Forty of those times are in the Gospel of John and the first two letters of John. So if you'd like to take some time and do a word study, again, I don't have time to do all that this morning, um, you'll, you'll see this focus in John on abiding, and it has lots of different meanings. And again, I, I just don't have time to go through all that this morning. Jesus says, abide in me and I in you. And then he says this, 
As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. Jesus is calling us to know and to experience, to understand that we are beloved children of God. That, I think, is here, anyway, the fundamental meaning of this word abide, is the experience and knowledge that I am a beloved child of God. And I think that what Tim Keller was saying about death, like we all know we're going to die, but we don't really know we're going to die until the doctor says, you really are going to (laughs) die. We all talk about being a beloved child of God, but I think most of us don't have much idea what that means. It's just hard to know that. There's so much in our own selves and so much in our lives, so much around us that argues against that. Jesus is saying, know for sure that you are a beloved child of God. And when you know that and you abide in that love, you're abiding in me. I'm sure almost all of you will be familiar with the name of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Lived in the first half of the last century. German by birth. Was a uh, uh, brilliant, brilliant uh, student of theology. And also lived through uh, the years of Nazism and, of course, during uh, during the Second World War. And he was a man who I believe is known for his ability to combine both this personal aspect of knowing that I'm a beloved child of God with bearing fruit in the world in which he found himself, in that that terrible world of pre-World War II Nazi Germany, and combining those two. And just to give you a little background on him, uh, in case you aren't familiar with him, but in case you are, just to remind you, just a short little description on video of some of the things that he went through, his life experience. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a double agent who plotted to assassinate Adolf Hitler in the Wolfslayer Fortress. When the plot failed... Hitler made sure he was executed in the final days before the German surrender. Today, he is hailed as a 20th century martyr, and you can find his statue among the sculptures of the 10 modern martyrs above the west entrance of Westminster Abbey in London. But who was he really? And why is his name widely known? And why is he a martyr? To find out we need to go back to a time in history when there was a huge upheaval in our world. A World War I German corporal from Austria had a vision for Germany and the world. 
His name, Adolf Hitler. The German nation was despondent after the defeat of World War I, the end of the monarchy, and the subsequent economic collapse. The charismatic Hitler offered a new government to replace the monarchy and appeared to be the nation's answer to their prayers. Now, the rise of the Third Reich brought the aristocratic and highly educated Christian pacifist Dietrich Bonhoeffer into a collision course with Hitler and the Nazi regime. Bonhoeffer struggled with the moral dilemma, his religious views and the courage to do something about the persecution of the Jews. In order to avoid compulsory military service, Bonhoeffer's brother-in-law helped him get a job with the German secret service, the Abwehr. Soon he became a double agent and was involved in foreign travel, secret meetings and resistance plans and was soon part of a plot to assassinate Adolf Hitler. Hitler viewed Bonhoeffer as a threat. He was banned from Berlin, forbidden to write, speak or publish. He tried to sabotage the Nazi war effort and smuggle German Jews to Switzerland. Bonhoeffer's personal mantra was, silence in the face of evil is itself evil. God will not hold us guiltless. Not to speak is to speak. Not to act is to act. He was arrested for his work as a double agent and assisting Jews to escape from Germany. When the plot, Operation Valkyrie, failed, Bonhoeffer's connections with the other conspirators were uncovered and he was sentenced to death. He chose to face imprisonment and execution with courage and to be faithful to the principles of his beliefs in God. He advocated that Christianity should transform your life and your actions. A famous author wrote this, The greatest want of the world is the want of men, men who will not be bought or sold, men who in their inmost souls are true and honest, men who do not fear to call sin by its right name, men whose conscience is as true to duty as the needle to the pole, men who will stand for the right though the heavens fall. Today, Bonhoeffer is celebrated for his Christian ethics and his theological writings are considered to be classics throughout the Christian world. His work is centered around the amazing grace that God offers each one of us. So you get a little picture of the, of the tremendous stress and strain in the, in the society and culture in which Bonhoeffer lived, but also his deep rootedness in knowing that he was a beloved child of God. And I found this quote from him, from his book, Letters, and not his book, but a book that was made after the war of Bonhoeffer's letters and papers from prison. Peter, could you just turn the volume down just a hair again, please? It's echoing a lot. Listen in this, in this quote to his, to his deep knowledge of being a beloved child of God. In me there is darkness, but with you there is light. I am lonely, but you do not leave me. I am feeble in heart, but with you there is help. I am restless, but with you there is peace. In me there is bitterness, 
but with you there is patience. I do not understand your ways, but you know the way for me. Lord Jesus Christ, you were poor and in distress, a captive and forsaken as I am. You know all men's troubles. You abide, there's the word, you abide with me when all men fail me. You remember and seek me. It is your will that I should know you and turn to you. Lord, I hear your call and follow. Help me. This deeply personal relationship with Jesus, knowing that he's a beloved child of God, that then was the force that drove him into the politics of his time, whether you agree with what he did or not. That's what drove him. So you may say, and and I think we all have this, okay, it says abide in God's love. What does that mean? And of course, there are lots of spiritual disciplines that help us do that. Uh, Keller mentioned that with his own particular prayer life, and, and those are all things that we that we should do. But again, those sometimes can be just a little vague and sometimes not not all that practically helpful. Jesus gives us a clue in this passage when he says, if you keep my commandments, and remember last word we talked last week we talked about this word keep, not meaning obey, but meaning preserve or guard or care for. If you care for my commandments, you will abide in my love. If you care for my commandments. So if you're thinking to yourself, I don't know if I'm abiding in his love. Care for his commandments. And what is a commandment? This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. So if you want to know whether you're abiding in Christ, you take the step to obey, to to observe, to keep, to watch for, to preserve Jesus' commandment. And what is that commandment? That we love one another. In other words, you step out in love towards your partner, your child, your parent, your colleague, the other driver, whoever it is that God has placed in your community. I first came in contact with the writings of Bonhoeffer in the early 1980s. I was in Nigeria at the time, and I believe, actually, I'm a little bit ashamed of this, or ashamed of my community. I had never heard of him before. And um, I got his book. It's a little green book. It was at that time a green paperback book. It's the classic version, uh, The Cost of Discipleship. Maybe some of you have read it. just blew me away. And at that time, I was struggling with these same things. What does it mean to abide in Christ? And what does it mean to go out and love people, and, and that's just not a simple thing. That was a, that was a crucible. 
Those were not easy days. Sometimes you think, I'm, I'm just not doing what I need to be doing, so how can I be abiding in Christ? I don't know what that means. I don't know what that feels like. I don't experience it. And that can be a real struggle, a real tension point. And very early in the chapter, the first chapter, I don't remember which page it was on, but this quote leapt out at me. And here it is. Only the one who obeys believes. And only the one who believes obeys. You want to know if you believe? Obey. And I'll use obey now in the sense that we're using keep. See how those two are linked together? And if you're just believing without keeping, then you have some more work to do. And if you wonder if you really are believing, if you really are abiding, if you really are understanding that you're a beloved child of God, then go out and obey. And those two work together. And they work together on the personal level and then feed through and lead to a concern and a willingness to sacrifice whatever it costs for justice and for peace and for righteousness in the society in which we live. Abide in me, says Jesus. If you abide in me, then my Father, the vine dresser, will be doing everything he needs to do, lifting up and cleansing so that you can bear the fruit that God has called you to bear. Again, I don't know what struggles or crises you're facing. I don't know what kind of pressures are impinging upon you. It could be very, very uh, private, personal ones that nobody else knows about. It could be that you're lying awake at night thinking about the debt ceiling. That's possible. Or the war in Ukraine. Whatever level it is, Jesus says, I am the true vine. And where Israel failed, I am not going to fail. You can be sure that I love you. How sure? Watch what happens tomorrow. Watch me get tortured. Watch me get betrayed. Watch me get abandoned. Watch me get tried falsely. Watch me get crucified. Watch me die. Watch me get buried. If you want to know whether I love you or not, just look at that. And hear me say from the cross, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. And if you have trouble believing that, go out and love somebody. Take a new step. Reach out. Say something you haven't said. 
do something you haven't done on whatever level it is and know as you do that, that you're doing that because you're rooted in the vine that is Jesus Christ. Amen.